You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week six of the study In His Image. Today's teaching is entitled God Most Gracious. So this week we studied a topic that we all appreciate and enjoy thinking about, grace, receiving what we do not deserve. And we thoroughly grasp that concept, right? And yet, do we struggle with needing to earn it? Or at least thinking it's grace plus my obedience, my giving, my acts of service. Or have any of you ever experienced this awkward moment when a friend gives you a Christmas present and it never even occurred to you to buy one for them? How many of you have been tempted to quickly fumble over words of like, oh, I have yours, I just haven't wrapped it yet, or I'm waiting for it to arrive in the mail, which really means I need to go home and order it and wait for it to arrive in the mail. Sometimes we don't quite know how to just fully receive when we haven't earned it or can't reciprocate in a similar manner. But before we jump into grace, let me pray. Father God, Gracious Lord, we thank you and praise you that in your perfect plan and divine wisdom, we don't have to earn your grace. You pour it out freely on us and you pour it in abundance, which really when we think about that, it kind of just blows our mind. May we live a life of gratitude to you and may we learn how to receive your grace as you want us to, and live in your grace. And now, dear Lord, be gracious to me. Deliver your words. Hide me. Open our hearts. Pour out your grace on all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I looked up the definition for the word gracious, I found courteous, kind, and pleasant. And then one definition had the qualifier of gracious in Christian belief, and that said showing divine grace. The Bible Project explains that in addition to those meanings, gracious in today's English means forgiving, merciful, and compassionate. It concludes that when God calls himself gracious, what he means is that he sees you as a treasure. He delights in you regardless of your status or behavior. Some definitions I found for the word grace are courteous goodwill, God's unmerited favor and goodness, kindness from God we don't deserve, favor in salvation of sinners. A.W. Tozer defined it as that in God which brings into favor one justly in disfavor. And Arthur Pink wrote that divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Pink goes on to explain that it is eternal, it is free, and it is sovereign. We will see that in God's word in a few moments. And yes, grace is free but that does not mean that it is cheap. It is free to us, 
but it cost God greatly as he sent his only son on our behalf. And it cost Christ greatly as he suffered an agonizing death. We have to make sure that we never equate free with cheap. The Hebrew word typically used is Cain, often translated as favor. And it also means charming, pleasing, precious, and an object of beauty. The Greek word used in the New Testament most often is charis, kindness, blessing, favor. A longer definition is that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. The merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Did that last part resonate with you? Yes, we are saved by grace, but we are also kept by grace, strengthened by grace, sanctified by grace, live in grace. Somehow we've adopted the idea that yes, we receive salvation by grace, but then the rest is totally up to us. That it is grace plus. Dear friends, praise God that it is all by grace. His goodwill being poured out. God himself is grace. There's always grace in the heart of God, perfectly eternally which as we said last week with mercy, his grace was every bit as much in the Old Testament as in the New. No one has ever been saved but by grace. Genesis 6, 8 reads, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in Exodus 33:13, Moses says to the Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. And in both verses, the Hebrew word for favor is Cain, the same word for grace. So let's look at scriptures for the ways that God is gracious to us. Exodus 33:17, God informs Moses that he has indeed found favor in his sight and he knows him by name. The Lord assures him that his presence will go with him and he's even willing to reveal his glory to Moses. Because God is gracious to us, he knows each of us by name. Is there anything more personal than our name? Would you rather someone call out your name when they want your attention or to just merely say, hey, you? Doesn't it make us feel special when someone that we met a long time ago remembers our name when we run into each other again? It's significant that God knows our name he knows us. And likewise, because God is gracious to us, we can know him. He is not a distant, impersonal, mysterious God. Moses says, if I have found favor or grace, then show me your ways that I may know you. He is not only willing, but he desires to be known by us. I'm not sure we fully grasp what a gracious blessing it is to be able to know personally the sovereign creator of the universe, to be able to have an intimate relationship with him, to be able to approach his holy throne at any time, even after messing up when we need it the most. We could never approach an earthly ruler 
without an appointment made well in advance and background checks and security guards surrounding us, not to mention needing a very legitimate reason to make that appointment and most likely needing to be kind of in a prestigious position ourselves. If you know the story of Esther, she had to ask permission to approach the king who happened to be her husband. God's grace is what enables each of us to enter into the presence of the ruler of all rulers, the king of all kings. In his first letter, Peter writes in 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Note that it says all grace. He is generous with his grace. It is not a partial gift. It is given in abundance to us. We will never need more grace. He's given it all already. And yes, it is his grace that allows us to know him and experience his spiritual presence with us. And it is his grace that, allows, that will allow us to know him for all of eternity, to dwell in his physical presence. It is his grace that restores us when we go astray, and it is his grace that strengthens us when we are weak. In Timothy's second letter, he instructs his readers in um, chapter one, verses eight through nine, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's divine grace poured out on us was his perfect plan and intended purpose from before the ages began. And Paul in Romans 3.24, after explaining that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, writes that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. God in his graciousness makes his grace for us free, a gift. We don't have to earn it, pay for it, hope we're good enough for it. Indeed, we can't. We know that and yet how we try. Arthur Pink understood that about human nature and he added in his book to his definition of grace that it is completely unmerited and unsought. Grace can neither be bought, earned, nor won by the creature. My brother-in-law, Don, was a youth pastor years ago, and on a hot August afternoon, he took some of the teens, and they set up outside a grocery store with a big cooler handing out cold water bottles to the shoppers as they exited the store. And he said it was amazing how many people just would not, could not accept it for free, insisting that they at least give a donation, if not just directly pay for it. Don had to work extra hard to explain that it was a free gift, no strings, given out of the kindness of Don and the teens. They bought the water, they paid the price, so that the hot, tired shoppers could receive it for free. And yet so many were suspicious. No free lunch, right? Too good to be true. Or they just felt guilty over not paying for it. 
We also see that in the story of the prodigal son. When the wayward son finally reaches the point of desperation and he decides to return home and confess he he has sinned to his father and therefore is not worthy to be called his son, he decides that he will ask his father to hire him as a servant so that he can earn his way back in. Instead, what does the father do? He runs to him, embraces him, puts on his robe and ring and celebrates his return. The son had done nothing to deserve that treatment, but the father graciously poured it out on him. The Bible tells us that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And that parable of the prodigal son exemplifies that. The father didn't give just a lukewarm welcome, allowing him to move back in. No way. The robe, the ring, the feast, the rejoicing, it was grace upon grace. The prophet Nehemiah points out the various ways that God's people had rebelled against and disobeyed him, despite his warnings, until he eventually gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. And in 931, he writes, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. As Jen pointed out in her book, it's impossible to separate God's grace and mercy. They are both essential qualities of his constant character and treatment of us, giving us what we do not deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. As I said last week with our no dessert punishment, Ron taking on the no dessert consequence was mercy. Our child joyously devouring the dessert was grace. Psalm 111.4 tells us that the Lord is gracious. And then the following verses list the various ways he displays that. He provides for their need, He remembers his covenant forever. He reveals his power. He gives his people an inheritance. He is faithful and trustworthy in all his ways. And he sent redemption to his people. I'd alluded earlier that it's been quite a week. So we were gone Thursday to Sunday camping with my husband's brothers and their families. Um, Returned home Sunday. And then um, Tuesday morning, I had to take the refugee family to the clothing bank. And I had out-of-town guests, my college roommate and her husband from Michigan, arriving Tuesday at lunch and staying with us for a couple days. And Tuesday morning at 4 a.m., our hot water tank burst. Um, And so I got to tell you, you know, at 5 in the morning when my husband and I are up trying to figure this out, you know, kind of a bit of a mess in the basement, not horrible, but... Um, And I was not feeling like God was being gracious to me in that moment. I was like, Lord, I've been gone camping. I've got to take the refugee family. And as a reminder, I'm doing that for you, Lord. Um, And I've got out-of-town guests coming that I'm now texting saying, hey, Lisa, make sure you shower this morning because you're not going to be able to at my house. Um, You know, this and all of a sudden God, in his graciousness, spoke to my heart. And I was so overwhelmed by how gracious he was to me. That hot water tank could have burst Thursday, Friday, Saturday when we were out in Western Pennsylvania. 
that hot, hot water tank could burst this weekend coming up when we're gonna be in Ohio visiting my son. And also my husband, I did get his permission to share this and he said, absolutely you can, so I'm good. He snores. And um, so when we were camping, I kind of didn't sleep for three nights and I knew I had a busy week and I was like, I need a good night's sleep. So typically when that would happen, he would go upstairs to a guest room up there and sleep up there. But I had the upstairs all perfect for the company and I was like, you can't mess it up up there. So he slept down in the basement, which means he immediately heard the hot water tank when it burst at 4 a.m. It brings me to tears how gracious God was. If he had been on the second floor, he never would have heard it. I heard a noise, but I had no idea what it was. I wouldn't have gone down to the basement. So, so many ways God showed us his graciousness. And then at 7 a.m., we called a plumber. They were completely accommodating to me having to go to the clothing bank with the refugee family. They met us at 10.30 when I got home. He was like, yep, your hot water tank is shot. Um, but hey, no problems. We have everything in stock. You'll have hot water by this afternoon. Um, so my friend and her husband arrived. A little bit of chaos going on with the plumbers, but it, it was all good. So often it is our perspective about God's graciousness. It is never about him being gracious. He's always gracious. We just need to train ourselves to see it that way and to humbly confess when we don't. The psalmist in 119.29 appeals to the Lord to put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. God is gracious to us by giving us his law and then giving us his spirit to help us understand the law. But do we see it that way? Do we see his law as a gracious gift for our benefit? And his law also points us to our desperate need for grace since we can never perfectly keep all of it. Paul in Galatians 1.15 expresses something he's so grateful for. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, God's grace is sovereign. He chose us. Nothing we did to earn it. Nothing anyone can do to convince him. Grace has always been in the heart of God. Always who he is, but it was manifested at the cross. Grace was fully revealed and perfectly exemplified when the Redeemer died for his people at Calvary. Salvation has always been by grace through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the cross. Since Jesus, it's looking back at the cross. Arthur Pink explains the relationship that the Trinity has to grace. God the Father is the fountain of all grace. God the Son is the channel of all grace. And God the Spirit is the communicator and bestower of all grace. John writes in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Paul, in Romans 5, says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the th free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then in verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness, 
leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, grace can reign in our lives through righteousness. I quoted D.A. Carson when we looked at holiness, that sanctification is grace-driven effort. And Jen had that quote actually in her chapter also. So let's look further at what God's word says about how we are to receive and live out grace. And I believe we live it out best by receiving it in truth and abundance. Similar to what I said with holy and mercy, if we are not appalled by the truth of our sin, we will never be amazed by his grace. The hymn writer described grace as amazing because he first saw himself as wretched. And we need to acknowledge that his grace is sufficient. It is not grace plus what I can bring to the table. There's a strong work ethic here in Lancaster County, which is a good thing, but we can carry that same mindset into our striving to earn God's favor, but we don't need to. He has dispensed his grace freely and it is enough. In fact, scripture talks about the grace of God being a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. And I think that's partly because it completely dismantles our prideful concept that we can and should work hard and therefore earn God's favor and blessings. Years ago, my husband used to teach at a college called Nyack College up in New York outside the city. Um, And he would occasionally give what he knew in his mind was going to be a grace quiz, but the students didn't. It was impossible to pass. Extremely difficult to even get one answer right. I mean, it would be like ridiculous questions like, on page 74 of the reading, what adjective did the writer use in the second paragraph? And his students would be taking this quiz, complaining and grumbling about how ridiculous it was and how unfair it was. And then when they were all done, Ron would tell them to exchange papers with their neighbor. And then he would tell them to write 100% on the top of the paper. Most of the students, as you can imagine, were greatly relieved. But there was one student who was the most vocal in his complaining and anger during the quiz. And he refused to accept the perfect grade. I didn't earn it. I won't take it. Your quiz was ridiculous. But still, I didn't earn the 100%. I will not take that grade. He would not allow himself to accept the grace. So maybe we aren't that extreme in rejecting the free gift, but do we secretly credit our good works as earning us extra grace with God, increasing our worth to him? Dare I say even ensuring that surely now God owes me extra blessings? Or at the very least, we feel better convincing ourselves that it wasn't a totally free, undeserved gift. I mean, I did some stuff to warrant it. I'm a pretty good person. Paul warns us against that mindset in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. And that verse will be on the PowerPoint slide, but I'm going to paraphrase it very loosely. Basically, what it says is, it's a total gift, folks. You did nothing, so don't be bragging. He expresses that same idea in Romans eleven six, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So we must receive it fully and also humbly. James tells us in 4.6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are to be humble yet confident, not in ourselves but in God's grace. Romans 6.14 assures us that sin will have no dominion over you. The New American Standard states that sin shall not be master over you since you are not under law but under grace. Since it is by God and God alone and not based on our own efforts, we can proceed confidently on this Christian journey, not burdened by the weight of having to perform or earn or deserve. Further, Timothy informs us in his second letter that we are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. His grace saves, but it also sustains us and carries us and strengthens us. Romans 5, 2 in fact states, through him, meaning Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Are we standing in his grace or are we trying to stand on our own works? One of the meanings there for stand is abide. Are we ever aware that we need to live in his grace? Our only hope for giving grace to others, for living graciously, is if we are dwelling in his grace. And how do we live graciously? Well, let's substitute some of the definition words I used earlier. We are kind, we are courteous, we are pleasant. Paul in Ephesians 4.29 gives us very practical advice for how we can extend grace to others by speaking words that build up or edify. I encourage all of us to do some self-reflecting and ask ourselves, do my words build others up or tear them down? Do my words extend grace? And if you really wanna be convicted by that, narrow it into within the walls of your own home. Do the words I speak in my own home extend grace to my family. And we remember that his grace is, like I said earlier, sufficient. We like the first part of that verse, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh good, his grace will be enough. But the second part of that, word, that verse of Jesus' words to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, after he says my grace is sufficient for you, he says for my power is made perfect in weakness. If we had to rely on our own effort and our own good works and our own righteousness, then weakness would be a real problem. Struggles would really set us back and could jeopardize our standing in heaven. But praise be to God, his grace is sufficient. He showers us with grace upon grace. Are we receiving it every day? Are we abiding in it? Are we standing upon it? Or like Ron's student, are we just not able to fully embrace the idea that it is totally free and undeserved and unearned and a beautiful, amazing gift? Are we stuck in the mindset of grace plus? Arthur Pink wrote the following 
if I could find my book here, um, in his book. Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. That's us, ladies. But rejoice and celebrate. We have received and continue to receive grace upon grace. Our heavenly father has placed his family ring and the righteous robe of his gracious son on us. And one day we will celebrate for all of eternity with him in heaven, feasting on his glory and in his presence. Truly we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. For my closing prayer, I'm just gonna read this blessing over you from 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. 